Well, let's turn our attention now to the preaching of the word of the living God by turning to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We're looking this morning at walking in sobriety. I'll have more to say about that title in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, let me give a context for the passage we'll be looking at, picking it up in verse 17. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We'll be oscillating our attention this morning to verse 18, and specifically just the first half of verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That precedes one of the most important verses in the entire Bible about Christian life and Christian living. Be filled with the Spirit. Just a little look ahead, that word filled is plerao. It means to be pushed along and influenced. It was used of a sheet that was a sail, and once the wind hit that sail and filled the sail, then it moved the ship along. We're to be moved along, filled with the Holy Spirit. The thrust of Paul's instruction is that a believer must learn to live and navigate life under the control and under the direction of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit himself. But before he gives that instruction and before he gives that admonition, before he generates that command, he gives us a contrast. He provides a negative comparison, a negative contrast. He says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the reason is tucked in there because that's debauchery or dissipation. It brings up the subject of how a Christian should think and act regarding alcoholic beverages. If you're a guest with us, you may show up today and say, what kind of church did I visit today? They're, they're throwing shade at, at liquor. Well, it's the next verse. We're teaching through Ephesians, and this is literally the next verse. But it's a verse that should be considered. I struggled to provide a title for today. Here were some of my failed attempts. To drink or not to drink, that is the question. <laughs> then I had this one, drinking, don't do it. And then I had drinking, do it wisely. And then I had, wine is out, but beer is okay. And then I tried this one, the spirit and the spirits. <laughs> well, after I passed all of those by, my, by the church secretary, who, minded, who, who, by the way, is my wife, she said, why don't you just call it walking in sobriety? And I said, well, I was going to do that eventually. That's, that was going to be my, my title. 
So my, my sweet beloved gave me this title because that's what we're going to be talking about today. A little context, the last time I preached on the Christian and alcohol or the Christian and drinking here at Mission Road Bible Church, I had the most unusual set of responses. We were teaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, coming to Solomon's experiment with pleasures of the world in Ecclesiastes 2, and he tried out alcohol and literally tried out drunkenness to see if that would offer any satisfaction. After that sermon, I was shocked to find out that some of the feedback was that I had been way too loose about drinking and alcohol. I've been too libertine on the subject. And the criticism was that I should have been more explicit so as to discourage any drinking of alcohol anywhere at any time. This, I heard, would simplify the subject by just saying, don't ever drink alcohol, even NyQuil. (laughs) For the same exact sermon. I was also told that I had been too quick to speak against why well, I come across legalistically and that I should need to make sure that I teach people how to drink responsibly. In fact, I was told, you, Rick, ought to be the chief drinker in the church to show people how to do it right. Now, I'm not using political jargon when I say this, but you know how red and blue equals purple? I tried to preach purple, and people heard red and people heard blue. So I'm going to try to thread the needle in the next few minutes and few weeks probably um, a little better than I did the first time, if I may. The section we're studying here in Ephesians begins in really in chapter 5, verse 15, goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, on how to walk carefully, being careful how you live, careful how you walk, cashing in every moment and every action of life as a stewardship before God. And in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul comes to the central contrast and illustration of how to live differently, to walk carefully as a believer, different than an ungodly world. Don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. That's the characteristic of those who want to be influenced in the world, but instead be filled or influenced with the Spirit. We'll see this in the coming weeks, that there's a, there's a parallel don't get drunk with wine. That's the part of that sentence that has a controlling influence, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the controlling part of that sentence, that, that's half of the sentence. And they're both what controls and moves. The apostle cites drunkenness that's prohibited here. And it's an example of the opposite of being filled with the Spirit of God. Now, to understand the relationship between drunkenness and living by the power of the Holy Spirit seems a little odd, but it shouldn't if you know your Bibles. Let's go back to a familiar scene, the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost. Flip over to uh, to Acts chapter 2 for a moment, because I think that Paul had to have this section of Scripture in mind when he penned Ephesians 5.18, because the parallels are unmistakable. Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read a generous portion of this narrative just to get it in our minds. And as we're reading through this passage, I want you to listen, listen to these two forces and these two comparisons, the Spirit of God and His work 
and the influence of alcohol and its pervasive influence. Just have your antenna up as we read through this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Does that sound familiar? And began to speak with other languages, other tongues, and the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem and devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not, are not these men who are speaking Galileans? They don't know my language. How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Then he gives a list of the people who were there speaking different languages. Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own languages speaking in the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But, verse 13, others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. They're drunk. How do we know that they were saying they were drunk? Hold on to that thought. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice, declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not as accused, what? Drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your, son, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man... God, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. What precious words of the gospel those last few verses are. Do you hear a similar parallel in Ephesians 5, to Ephesians 5.18? These men... Seem drunk. Now, what's going on here? 
Luke is writing this, recording the words of Peter. And the people who saw the day of Pentecost thought, these, these people are drunk. What's gotten into them was the question that they asked. And they thought alcohol had gotten into them. However, they were exhilarated from understanding the gospel so much so that their entire disposition was noticeably different. People that people knew before were instantly different, so different they thought they were drunk with joy, with exhilaration, with happiness because they were filled with the Spirit of God. This account paints a striking picture that in contrast to the pagan partying and uncontrolled drinking of the society, they were experiencing these new believers, pure joy and mutual encouragement. And Paul brings up the issue here of drinking alcohol to the point of getting drunk. And strangely enough, the comparison is being filled with the Spirit just like the comparison on the day of Pentecost. Very interesting. This compels us to slow down for a week or two and talk about the boogeyman of Christian practice, drinking, drinking alcohol. There are a few things as divisive, especially in the church, of the subject of drinking alcohol. Churches have literally split over this issue. Families have separated over this issue. Arguments have erupted over this issue. Judgment has been passed because of this issue. Christians who believe it is sin to drink look judgmentally at those who believe it's liberty to drink. And those who believe it's okay to drink look judgmentally at those who abstain. Next week, we're going to look specifically at that judgmentalism that can exist from both directions. And it's wicked sin from each side. So for the next couple of weeks, I'm not making any promises. I'd like for us to pave a path of biblical maturity on this hot potato issue. Let's use that illustration. The hot potato, by virtue of the text, has passed this issue to us. We're going to hold it. We're not passing it around. We're going to look at it for a little bit. Uh, it's critical that our thoughts about drinking, about alcohol, are rooted in Scripture, not in our preference, not in our past, and not in our intuition. So we're going to take a short detour in our text, from our text, actually, to better understand what the Bible says about drinking. This is what we would call a springboard sermon this week and next week, at least, uh, we're going to be in the, final, in the first half of Ephesians 5.18 and then launch into other places in God's Word about the questions that that text raises that the Word of God does indeed answer. So here will be our outline. Biblical wisdom and substances that can intoxicate. I'm going to broaden it out to that. Biblical wisdom and substances that can intoxicate. Ten guiding principles. I'm a little trepidatious to tell you that we're only going to get through the first one today, but it's the longest one, and it's probably the most important one pertaining to this text. So I knew when I was not finished with point one and at page 14 that we were in trouble, so we're not going to do them all today. 
The first is obvious. First biblical principle, drunkenness is sin. Drunkenness is sinful. We have to begin with the most obvious statement that Paul makes here, and then we'll springboard from that to other places beginning next week to get a a better kind of panoply of God's Word on this issue. Drunkenness, let's start with this. Drunkenness is sinful. Do not, and there's an and associated to walking according to the will of the Lord, and do not, verse 18, get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That's a negative. Don't be drunk with wine. Turn for a minute with your, hold your finger there over to 1 Peter chapter 8. Excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter uses an interesting word here that the New American Standard takes a little bit of liberty with. He says, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit. If you have a NASB, you'll notice that that word spirit is in italics, which means it's not in the original. Literally, Peter says, Remain sober, live in sobriety, or that wonderful title that my wife gave me, walk in sobriety, be sober, be sober-minded, don't be influenced by anything other than the Spirit of God. That's back to the capture of 518. So that's the positive side of the negative. Don't get drunk with wine is the same thing as saying, be sober, be sober little background, nothing in the book of Ephesians or in the book of Acts about the church at Ephesus indicates that the believers in that church had a pronounced or noticeable struggle with drunkenness. You say, why is that important? Because I think Paul might have said things differently if they had, because he did say things differently to the Corinthians who did have a problem with drunkenness. It was so bad, get this, that they were coming to the Lord's table celebration and there were two problems. People were coming hungry and saying, I don't want a piece of the bread. I want the whole bread. They were, they were coming to have supper there. And others were coming saying, free wine, I'm, I'm going to go to the point of getting drunk. That's exactly what he addresses in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. And he, he means not to come and have a meal out of the Lord's supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. Have your meal at home first. We can't, we, it would be hard for someone to have a whole meal out of our tiny little crackers here, the way we do communion. One is hungry, he says, and the other is drunk. They were coming to the Lord's table saying, free wine, free spirits, let it flow. Paul is describing a shameful scene there in Corinth. The believers at Corinth were gathering to celebrate the Lord's Supper and were treating it like a pagan party, coming to satisfy their own desires, including eating the bread out of hunger and drinking the wine to the point of intoxication. Interestingly, that's not what Paul says here in Ephesians 5. He just, out of the blue, with a general admonition, says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't become intoxicated with wine. And remember, this is in the context in the previous two verses of living, redeeming the time and living according to the will of the Lord and living with wisdom, not as a fool. The contrast between not getting drunk and between being controlled by the, or 
filled with the Holy Spirit, is that of control and influence. Those are two important words, control and influence. What controls you or what makes you lose self-control and what influences you or has a bearing on you. Point Paul's driving to us is that just as alcohol can control and influence a person's judgment and behavior, it should be the Holy Spirit of God that controls and influences a believer's judgment and behavior. Judgment and behavior are what are in play here. And alcohol can cloud a person's judgment and behavior if intoxicated and the Spirit of God is the one who is to have the guiding, most consequential empowerment, consideration in our judgment and our behavior as believers. Now, going back to verse 17... Drunk people, by definition, are not in complete control of their judgment and behavior and therefore cannot judiciously comprehend the will of the Lord, which is what he says to do. And then he says, and don't get drunk. So there's a connection there. There's a linkage there with a word. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and don't get drunk with wine. That's dissipation. Now, let me be clear from the beginning of this study. I think it will be two weeks. I'm not making any promises right now. Paul is not, in this verse, Paul is not prohibiting the drinking of wine. He's prohibiting getting drunk with wine. Let's make sure we see what it's saying and understand what it's not saying. A hermeneutical, quick hermeneutical footnote is important to insert here. Paul is not merely said prohibiting the drinking of wine in such a way that other intoxicating substances are approved. That's why our uh, proposition is biblical wisdom and substances that can intoxicate, not just wine. He's not saying that getting drunk with wine is out, but getting drunk with whiskey or vodka or distilled beverages, that's okay. I've had someone try to make that argument with me. Well, he just says, don't get drunk with wine. doesn't say anything else. Do you think that's what he's saying? The last half of the verse says he's talking about intoxication, not the substance itself. It applies to marijuana. It applies to opioids. It applies to LSD. It applies to anything that would take controlling influence and impact judgment and behavior. He's obviously, by implication, including any intoxicating substance. Wine was a very common drink, in the first century, it was a wonderful blessing of God. We'll see that next week. Just you can come back and see what the Bible says positively about that next week if you'd like. He's not saying don't drink any wine. He's saying don't get drunk. Why? Why? Well, it's right there baked into the, the command. For that is dissipation. Big word. What does it mean? Well, that Greek word is used in Titus 1.6 where elders are to be men who have children who are not accused of dissipation. They're not accused of a partying spirit. One modern translation calls dissipation being having a partying reputation. That's, that's a good vernacular translation. 1 Peter 4.4, Peter uses that word to describe unbelievers who will be surprised that Christians do not join them in their excesses or dissipation. They're partying it's getting together for the purpose of drinking. That's what he's saying. That's dissipation. If you're doing it just for that, that's a problem. 
And then it's obviously used here in Ephesians 5.18. The meaning here is clear. It points to a life that lacks self-control, such that the desire for intoxication rises to the level of the desire for the beverage itself. Proverbs 23 31 speaks of this when it says, Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In other words, don't be attracted to that substance or any substance that tempts you to overindulge. The Bible has so much to say about this, and we will, we're just going to skim the surface today. We'll talk about this much more next week. Wine is a mocker, Proverbs 20, verse 1 says. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Hey, by the way, as a footnote, you got to think about what the options were. We'll see next week that uh, wine makes the heart merry. What, what does that mean? Is that, does that talk about wine makes the heart drunk? Well, no, that can't mean that, or it would contradict Ephesians 5.18. It means it's... it's you would think it would be good to have wine and it would be merry if your only other two substances were goat's milk and water that was brown from the Jordan River. If you had a well, that was a wonderful thing. It was probably more pure from there. But he's saying, look, it's good to have something that's fermented that doesn't make you sick. Isaiah 5.11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. There are people who get up and the first thing they want to do is get intoxicated, and the first calories they want to consume are intoxicating calories, and the last calories they consume are intoxicating calories. Woe to them, Isaiah says. Romans 13.13, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. It's amazing when we hear these verses this week and next, how often drunkenness and sexual immorality are paired together. And of course, you know, Galatians 5, 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. This is the opposite of the the fruit of the Spirit. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, sexual terms. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, relational terms, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, and drunkenness. Carousing and things like these. And then Paul says, Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice, who continually pursue and partake of those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In our context, let me say it as simple as Paul did. Drunkards don't go to heaven. About church leadership, 1 Timothy 3 says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And then it says, not addicted to wine. Not not the greatest translation. They didn't really have a term for addiction. It literally is not given to much wine. Even in this context where wine was plentiful and everyone drank it most of the time, he says his reputation is not given to much wine. He's happy to have water. 
His reputation isn't, I have to have wine every time I eat. 1 Peter 4, 3, for the time is already past. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality. It's your old life, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties. There's our word, drinking parties and abominable idolatries. So at this point, the Bible is very clear, don't get drunk. I don't think anyone in their, in their right mind might argue that, that the Bible says anything other than that. But then you have a problem of definition. What is drunkenness? How much do you have to have to be drunk? What qualifies as drunk? Is tipsy drunk? Is, is wanting a little relaxation before I go to bed? Is that drunk? What, what is drunk? Well, I thought I would give the world a shot here and see what they said. This is what the Cleveland Clinic says about drunkenness. Alcohol, it says, reading from their, their, um, their website, alcohol is, central, is a central nervous system depressant. It reduces stimulation in your central nervous system, and it affects every organ in your body. That was a surprise to me. Every single organ in your body is affected by alcohol. So here's the different percentages of blood alcohol content, BAC. So I'll use that in a minute, blood alcohol content that can affect you physically and mentally. This is right from the Cleveland Clinic. BAC, 0.0%. There's no alcohol in your blood. You're sober. Pretty simple. BAC of 0.02. At this percentage, you may experience an altered mood, relaxation, and a slight loss of judgment. They go on to say that from 0.02 forward, you are at some level intoxicated. This isn't the Bible. This is the Cleveland Clinic. 0.05%. At this percentage, you may feel uninhibited and have lowered alertness and impaired judgment. 0.08. This percentage, you may have reduced muscle coordination, find it more difficult to de detect danger and impaired judgment and reasoning. 0.10. At this percentage, you may have a reduced reaction time, slurred speech, slowed thinking, 0.15 BAC. At this percentage, you may experience an altered mood, nausea, vomiting, loss of balance, and some muscle control. Blood alcohol content of 0.15% to 0.3%. In this percentage range, you may experience confusion, vomiting, and drowsiness. From 0.3 to 0.4%. In this percentage range, you'll likely have alcohol poisoning, a potentially life-threatening condition, and experience loss of consciousness. And any BAC, blood alcohol content, over 4% is potentially fatal uh, blood alcohol level. You're at risk of coma and death from respiratory arrest, absence of breathing. And then this is what the website says at the conclusion of that, that, that data. Some people can develop a tolerance to alcohol. This means that they may not feel the same physical and mental effects of alcohol drinking the same amount that they used to drink. This doesn't mean that their blood alcohol content is lower. It just means that they experience the effects of alcohol differently, end quote. All of that puts it in the relatively subjective category of defining drunkenness, doesn't it? I agree with this author who says this, commentator, drunkenness is the clouding 
or disruption by alcohol of any part of a person's mind so that it affects his faculties. A person is drunk to the extent that alcohol has restricted or modified any part of his thinking or acting. Remember the judgment and behavior, same thing. Drunkenness has many degrees, but it begins when it starts to interrupt the normal functions of the body and mind, end quote. So let's back to our definition. Does it influence judgment and does it influence behavior? When it influences judgment and it influences behavior, biblically, that means intoxication. You say, where does that start? It's different for different people, the Cleveland Clinic says. And it can be toleration, incre- tolerated and increased. How serious is this? How serious is giving your mind and your faculty and your responses over to an intoxicating substance? Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean all the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He says, don't associate with with the ungodly but I don't mean the ungodly people in the world or there would be no evangelism. Of course you would interact with them. But actually, I wrote to you, he says, not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. Here's the sexual right alongside drunkenness again. Covetous person or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard. Not even to eat with such one. And then those famous words, few verses later, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor the thieves, or the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The same thing he told the Galatians. And I love this verb, such were some of you. You used to be this way, but no longer. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Can I just take a quick aside to say, if you struggle with drunkenness, there is grace to be offered for that. You can be in the category category of such were some of you. The gospel can free you from any and every enslavement to substances. Romans 13, verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone. The day is near, coming of the Lord. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. We are the light of the Lord. We just learned in Ephesians. Not in carousing or drunkenness. Not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Not in strife and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to his lusts. That is a most serious consideration. Walk as a children of, walking as children of light means that we, we've seen, we move away from sexual immorality and sexual sin. We also move away from the abuse of intoxicating substances. 
who's a drunkard? How often do you have to get drunk to be a drunkard? Well, if you have a life that gets drunk on purpose, knowingly, you're a drunkard. This is not talking about, we'll get into this next week, this is not talking about a person who has an extra half glass of wine and says, whoa, I crossed the line, I'm not going to do that again. A drunkard is someone who intentionally crosses the line for the influence of alcohol or any other substance that would intoxicate. Remember Solomon's experiment with pleasures? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly till I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven. The few years of their lives, his conclusion, verse 11, I considered all my activities and it was all striving after the wind, no profit. One of the sad lies that our world tells is that drunkenness is a disease and not a sin. Drunkenness can be enslaving. That's the, the, the nomenclature of Romans 6. But it's not a disease that needs to be cured as it is a sin that should be repented of. Oh, I, I'm well aware that it should be, if, if you're enslaved to alcohol, you should do that under the care of a medical doctor. I, all for that. But it's a sin, not a disease. I know what most of you are asking. You can see it on your faces. I haven't looked at my email yet, but I probably have an email already. Okay, drunkenness is wrong. But what about drinking? Guess what point two is for next week? Drinking alcohol without getting drunk is not always sinful. Now, I phrased that carefully. It can be, but it isn't always. I'll get an email from somebody. Just come back next. Save that email till next week and, and after we explain that, okay? When Paul is, go, Paul is going to take us on a tour de force of understanding how to navigate a Christian liberty in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Romans 14 in a way that I think will give us such wisdom in how to handle this. You know where Paul is taking us is to apply the difference between drunkenness and self-control, which is the power of the Spirit. By self-control, he means intentionally living under the control of God's Spirit instead of fleshly desires. Interestingly, the Bible nowhere gives a detailed instruction on how to deal with drinking. But it does give detailed instruction on how to deal with liberties with which you disagree with other Christians about. And we'll get instruction from that next week. Intoxication is present when your judgment and behavior are affected by any ingested substance. That's biblically called intoxication. Now, quick aside, I have to say this. Not all suspension of judgment and not all live, giving control over to a substance is bad. Certainly not bad. Proverbs 3, 31.6 says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing. That's the equivalent of giving morphine to someone who's in the last throes of life. What a grace that we have that, that, will, that will quell the pains of, of dying. That's a, that's a blessing. 
Also, how about this one word? Anesthesia. If I'm going to have surgery, please take control of my brain. <laughs> I, I don't want to stay awake and have conversation with a surgeon. How are things going? Oh, really? Need help? I mean, no. You want to be knocked out. So be, be careful by saying any mind-altering substance is always universally unacceptable. No, there are applications that even the Bible says medicinally or in the grace of, of, uh, of an anesthetic that, that, helps, that helps someone die without pain. It's incredible that Solomon recorded that, that that is a grace of God to give pain uh, uh, suppression in the days of dying. We'll have more to say about the different uses of alcohol that the Bible encourages and allows next week. For now, the question is about drunkenness, control of the Spirit, and the consequent self-control that God demands. Solomon warned his sons, Listen, my sons, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. There's consequences by not only being a drunkard, but by hanging out with drunkards. The sinfulness of drunkenness is undeniable, indisputable. The harder questions involve the wisdom and application of drinking alcohol for taste and for pleasure without becoming intoxicated, which, drumroll, the Bible permits. It's just how you handle that with brothers and sisters who disagree with you and vice versa that comes into play on how we're to live with wisdom and with love. And again, we'll look closer at that next week.